Good morning, everyone. I've worked for several very large organizations in my career. One is NASA, and this is the American Space Agency. Uh, another is Intel Corporation, the global computer chip manufacturer. But I've only worked for one SME, and that's Amazon. When I joined the company in late 1999, early 2000, it was very much an SME. It was going to be several years before we even had a quarter worth of profit, certainly a long way from uh, an annual profit. And uh, we were growing rapidly, but we faced all the challenges that SMEs faced. Uh, where's the money coming from? Are we getting customers fast enough? Uh, is the business growing in the right way? Are we thinking about things in the right way? Are we, are we taking care of what we need to today, but also planning for the future? All those things were happening back in uh, 99 and 2000. And yet the company still was behaving very much like a startup. Even though we were facing some of these bigger company, medium-sized company challenges. Um, and today, of course, the company, as you probably know, has, has grown a bit. Uh, the scope of the services we offer are much broader than what we offered back then. Back then, it was basically a retail business. Right now, we have advertising, we have logistics, we have a Hollywood studio, uh, all these things. So it's grown in scope, but it's also grown in scale. Uh, before I pretty much knew everybody in the company, and now there are 1.6 million of us and growing rapidly. So the scale of the company is growing too. But from an insider's perspective, it still feels very much like the company that I joined over 22 years ago. That company was one that was focused on being a startup, behaving like a startup, having the startup speed, the mentality. In essence, we have to work really hard at this because of our, our scope and our scale. This doesn't happen accidentally. It's very easy for any large organization to slip into bureaucracy and slowness and, and long decision-making. The things that startups don't do, that SMEs don't do, we want to be like you. We try really hard to be like you, the startups and SMEs in this audience and at this conference. Um, and it takes work. There are, there are a couple ways we do it. First, our mechanisms. We have internal processes that allow us to behave like a startup, like a small or medium-sized enterprise. Uh, one of these is called the Two Pizza Team. And the two pizza team, it sounds a little funny, and I'll explain why it's called that, but it basically is a group of individuals who come together to address a particular challenge or opportunity. And these individuals are pulled from different parts of the company. They don't have to be in the same organization. They're just brought in for their expertise in particular areas, depending on the challenge or opportunity. And the number of people in one of these two pizza teams should be a number of adults comfortably fed by two pizzas, hence the name. We didn't want to set a specific number like eight people are in one of these teams. We wanted to have it a range. And so it, the range is roughly six people at the minimum, less than that, it's too much pizza, all the way up to about 11 or 12 is the maximum. That's not enough pizza, so somewhere in that range. The thing about these two pizza teams is that they're popping up and going out of existence, popping up and going out of existence all over the company all the time. I'd love to be able to tell you how many there are right now. Uh, certainly hundreds, more likely thousands, but I don't know. And nobody knows because we don't keep track of them. 
there's no approval process necessary. You don't have to go to your boss and say, you know, I'm forming this two pizza team with, uh, you know, seven other people and we're going to address this challenge. It's probably a good idea to let her know, you know, hey boss, I'm, I'm going to be doing this for a couple of weeks maybe. Um, but the point is there's no overall permission required. There's no authority that keeps track of them. Uh, there certainly is no process by which you have to apply to, to form a two pizza team. You just do it. Now, if you're a startup in this room, uh, you probably always are a two-pizza team. Your entire organization is 10 people, which is fine, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be like you. We're trying to figure out a way to maintain that startup mentality, even though the company itself overall is bigger. Here's another aspect of things. At any given moment, we can have two or maybe three or four or five of these two pizza teams throughout the company working on the very same problem. Redundant, doing the same thing. Is that wasteful? No, and here's why. Uh, the, the less important reason is you have more teams working on it. Maybe you'll come up with you know, a better set of ideas to choose from because you have you know, several teams addressing the same sort of a challenge. But the more important reason is that we don't want a new team to have to figure out if somebody is already doing this in the company. First of all, if, if, even if there were a way to do this, you know it would take time. It might take weeks or months to figure out if somebody in a different country, in a different group, people you don't even know out of your 1.6 million colleagues who are doing this. So the point is we would much rather have them not communicate, not even be aware of each other, so that they can innovate as a startup anywhere in the company. Now, obviously at some point, the, the product or service that we want to offer customers based on one or more of these two pizza teams, it has to be operationalized. We don't want to present our customers with multiple products that are basically the same thing. We want to be able to decide that, but that's, that's after the thing gets operationalized. So sometimes these two pizza teams, they, they exist for a few days, some for a few months, maybe a, a year or two. Um, but they're always coming and going. Again, we want to be like you. Now, there's another aspect, or another, there's another mechanism in Amazon with respect to decision-making. Decision-making at Amazon starts with a very basic decision. If are, are what we're deciding to do, or what do we need to do, is this a reversible or irreversible decision? We refer to these as one-way doors and two-way doors. There are lots of analogies, but the concept is this, a, a, an irreversible decision is one that you would take and then it would be very hard to untake it, to work backwards or to come back through the door. Um, and it might not be possible at all or it might be very difficult to do it. It involves helicopters. Um, the, the reality is though, the vast majority of decisions a large enterprise makes are two-way doors. You can take the decision, and if it doesn't work out, untake it, stop doing it. Um, a mistake that a lot of large organizations, sister organizations to, to Amazon, other, other companies uh, make, one mistake is they treat every single decision as if it's irreversible. So they take their time, they gather the data, they ponder it, they go back and forth, should we do it, should we not, should we do it? And that just slows them down. It, 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 it just takes way too long if, Instead, they recognize that most decisions are ones that if they take it, they can, they can go back and just stop doing it if it doesn't work. 
part of the problem, I think, is that companies and individuals, they don't want to embarrass themselves. They don't want to take a decision and then undecided because that suggests that maybe they were mistaken or wrong. We don't care about that at Amazon. So the truly one-way door kinds of decisions, we gather lots of data. Also, anecdotes, I think those of you who are quantitatively inclined, don't just rely on numbers. Picture actual customer circumstances and use those anecdotes, feedback if you can, uh, to help make your decisions. But those kinds of decisions, you probably want like 95% of the available information that, that you could get before you take the decision because it's going to be very hard to untake them. With the two-way door decisions, those kinds of reversible ones, be satisfied with, say, half of the available information. Because rather than spend the time to gather more data, which you always could, why not just launch it? Why not just do it? And if it works out, keep doing it. If it doesn't, stop doing it. Okay, those are two mechanisms that we use at Amazon to try to be like you, startups and, and uh, small and medium enterprises. We also have, more fundamentally at Amazon, a culture that we work very hard at, and it encourages us and facilitates us to be innovative, uh, but also innovative in a way that a startup, startup is. So let me give you some examples. The, the most important cultural aspect of Amazon is called customer obsession. Obsession is a very strong word, uh, and Jeff has been using this since, uh, since before I joined the company. And when I interviewed with him, I really wanted to understand what he meant by this. Was this kind of a marketing thing, or was this a real, a real set of feelings? And using the word obsession in the context of a commercial relationship seems very strong. But that's how we feel about it. We really think all the time about how we do things for customers. The mechanism that we use with customer obsession, um, that, one that I encourage every one of you in this room to try, There's, it's almost harmless to try, um, but uh, is, is to actually sit down and envision a product or service that you want to offer in the future. Um, sometime, maybe it's months or years in the future, but today, sit down and write a press release announcing the new product or service. That press release doesn't go out today when you're sitting here writing it. It doesn't go out next week. It goes out when the product or service actually launches months or years from now. Well, what does this do for you? A couple of things. One is by writing it down, it commits you to the idea. You're, you're actually going to try this thing, whatever it is, so you're writing it out, and you know that this is gonna take months or years of hard work to get to, but you're writing it out today. The second is, by writing it as a press release, you're writing it in customer language, in customer terms. What is in it for her? What does she get out of it, your customer? Because you're going to be presenting her, either through an article in the press or actually maybe the actual press release, you're going to be presenting to her at some point in the future what you want to offer her. The how of getting to that point is up to us. Customers don't care. They really don't care how hard we work. They don't care that we work nights and weekends for four weeks or five months to get something to her. That she just cares about what's in it for her. Does, is this a product or service that she wants or no? It's really that simple. We all are consumers at some level. And as consumers, we're very selfish this way. When, when, we're, when we see an advertisement or we see a, uh, an article about a new product or service, we evaluate it. We say, is that something that I care about? Is that something I want or not? We don't think about all the things that need to be done. So by writing out this press release designed to go out in the future, you work your way backwards to today, figuring out all the things 
you need to do, including invent things that don't exist, to get to that point. And so invention and innovation at Amazon is very driven. It's not just kind of random. We kind of think big thoughts and come up with ideas. It's more like we, we know we want to do this. We have no idea how to do it. So we have to figure it out. We have to invent things that haven't been invented before. I was part of one of these press release uh, writing exercises a few years ago with respect to Amazon Prime Air. This is our future uh, drone delivery service, aerial drone delivery service. And when we wrote the press release a few years back, I was part of the small team that did it, we, um, we spent a lot of time uh, thinking about how hard this was. We knew this was going to be very difficult. It turns out that navigation, for example, for an aerial drone, that's easy. It's just GPS and who cares. But things like collision avoidance, that's really hard. Deciding what to do when reaching a customer's location, the device has to be autonomous and decide if that movement down on the ground, is that a, a bush or is it a, a dog or is it a, is it a child? All these kinds of decisions, the thing has to make for itself. So the, um, the, uh, uh, they're at a different convention. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, we knew the challenges, the technical challenge would be significant, as well as the regulatory challenges, because this, the, the drones have to share the airspace with all sorts of other flying things, including things that don't announce themselves, like birds. So we, we, we knew the technical challenges were there, but when we sat down and wrote that press release, here's what, it, we, what we wrote. We're recognizing this is going to be way out here. We recognize we're going to have to invent a lot of things to get to that point. The focus of the press release was delivery to a customer within 30 minutes of an order. No mention of collision avoidance, no mention of navigation, no mention of artificial intelligence and ML and autonomy and all those things, it, because it doesn't matter to a customer. What matters to a customer is whether or not she can get something delivered to her within 30 minutes of an order. It's that simple. So that's the how. The what is still for us to figure out. It turns out it's a very difficult uh, challenge. But let me suggest to you that you can try this yourselves. I mean, there's, there's, why, what's stopping you? Uh, you know, over the weekend, write out a press release envisioning what you or your company or your organization, your government agency, or you yourself personally want to achieve, say, a couple of years from now. Where do you want to be? How would you announce this? How would you tell your customers? How would you tell your friends? Or how would you tell your citizens if you're a government agency? What would you tell them? Write it out today, and then keep that as that North Star, that goal that you're always working towards to get to that point. It's a very useful exercise. Another part of our culture is we require every one of us in the company, all 1.6 million of us, to be inventive. We evaluate each other based in part on how well we invent. Um, now, obviously, there's some aspects of what we do in our business that require lots of school, lots of training, just to even understand it, much less invent new things in it. But that isn't the entire business. The entire business includes things like warehousing. And so we actually practice a, something called Kaizen. Uh, it's, a, it's a technique developed by Toyota in the mid-1980s. And the whole concept there is that if you can make a very small incremental improvement somehow and deploy it over very large numbers of things or, or, or over very large numbers of years or, or objects, you can have tremendous overall savings. And so we ship billions of packages a year. And so if we can figure out a way to speed up the packing of a package inside one of our warehouses by just a, a couple of seconds, multiply that by billions each year, 
for hopefully many years in the future, uh, that's a big cost savings for our customers. And so we require everyone, all 1.61 million of us, to figure this out. Uh, and, and that's a hard thing to do, to uh, tell people you're not only empowered to invent and do cool things, you're required to. Another aspect of the culture is our willingness to fail. And this happens to be one of the hardest things for other organizations, be they private sector or public sector, to emulate. Because failure is hard. No one wants to admit that they fail at something. You don't want to tell your spouse or your friend or your colleague or, worst of all, your boss that you just failed at something. Um, and yet we encourage this at Amazon. We encourage failure as we innovate on behalf of customers. And here's how it works and here's why it works. If you want to do something innovative, that is to say something that no one else has done before, something that is truly new, you have to, you must experiment with it. Because otherwise, you don't know if it's going to work, uh, because this is truly new, it's not been done before, so you experiment with it. And every experiment, just like a scientific experiment, must be able to fail. If it cannot fail, it's not an experiment. It's probably a demonstration of something you already knew or it was just so trivially easy, everybody knows it. So if you go into something and you want to do something new that's never been done before, you have to be able to experiment and it has to be able to fail. And so we fail all the time at Amazon. Uh, Jeff personally takes credit for billions of dollars of failure. That's probably a lowball figure, Jeff. But the, uh, the idea is this, that because we're always trying, uh, this works out economically, and I'll explain why. Um, I, I carry around with me a, a phone manufactured by a different company, not Amazon, because we had a phone product uh, that our customers ended up not liking that much, and so it, it was a commercial failure. We ended up taking like $170 million write-down on it, uh, and it only lasted for about eight months on the market. Um, I'm not embarrassed at all that the thing failed. I'm not embarrassed at all that it almost cost us $200 million. I'm embarrassed because it got out the customers. Our failures, for the most part, virtually all of them, you'll never hear about because we failed behind the scenes. We didn't go out to our customers with something that eventually failed. We don't want them to be the experimenters for us. We don't want to give them a bad product. Um, but we really want to try to make our ideas fail before they get out to them. And so we have a notion called dis disconfirmation of one's beliefs disconfirmation. We're all humans. We all have confirmation bias built into us. And so when we have an idea, a new idea, we tend to look for information that supports our idea. And we look for it everywhere. We're eager to find it. Oh yeah, that supports my idea. I got a good idea. Oh, that supports my idea too. And then we tend to discount information that would tend to disconfirm our idea. Well, that came from a shady source. I'm not sure I believe that. Oh, I'm not going to look at that. You see what I'm saying? We, we're always looking to try to encourage us as individuals. As a company at Amazon, we work very hard to disconfirm our beliefs. And we rely heavily on diversity, by the way, because if you, if you end up surrounding yourself by people who look like you and went to the same schools as you and had the same background as you, they're going to have a much harder time disconfirming your beliefs than uh, if you have a diverse set of colleagues. So this is a, a very important point to us. Okay, so that's Amazon, and that's how we uh, try to be like you, try to be like SMEs and startups, and uh, with some success. But let me offer you some advice. Uh, it's free, so uh, take it for what it's worth. Um, 
try some of these things. Uh, try thinking before you have a decision, is this a, a reversible decision or not? Or is it just, a, am I treating it like an irreversible decision just because I might be embarrassed if it doesn't work out? Try that. Um, try also writing that press release. Write the press release this weekend about something you want to be doing two or three or five years from now. Write it out. There's no harm in it. You don't even have to show it to anybody. It, doesn't never, it might never actually go out as a press release, but who cares? Uh, I actually envision a circumstance uh, where I'm in my office, uh, you know, typing away, door is closed, knock on the door. I say, come on in. And uh, the person walks in and she says, um, hey, um, I'm your customer. What are you doing? And I say, well, I'm sending some email. I've got a conference call in about 10 minutes. I've got a video conference a little later. I'm, I'm writing a report, and tonight I'll do some more email. <laughs> and she'll look at me and say, wait, I, I just told you I'm your customer. What are you doing? And I just said, oh, I told you I'm doing email, and I've got a conference call, and I got, I'm reading your report. And then she says, well, wait a minute. I'm your customer. What's in it for me? If I am able to reach into my desk drawer, at least metaphorically, and pull out one of these press releases and hand it to her, and she says, she reads it, she says, oh, that's kind of cool. That's, that's what these calls and emails and reports are about. It's about getting this to me sometime. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on. That's, that's my goal, is to get to the point where that press release goes out and you have this new product or service. And she's like, oh, okay, well, carry on. Let me, and she leaves. Consider the opposite. If I'm not able to explain to her why all the things that I do day to day, which include a lot of email and report reading and conference calls, if I'm not able to explain that, that's a real problem. Every single one of us in this room should be able to explain to a customer why you're doing what you're doing today, including this mundane stuff that we all do. Every one of us does this mundane stuff. But if it's with a goal in mind, a customer-facing goal, then that's fine. That's perfect. That's just a matter of getting it done. Another bit of, uh, of advice, um, one that I think maybe is more personal to entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurial people like, like you are, um, and that is... Don't be afraid to learn stuff you don't know. And I know this sounds very trivial. It sounds trite. Of course you want to learn more. You want to... I, have, I have found throughout my fairly long career now that some of the very smartest people I work with, some of the most talented, some of the most accomplished people are very good at one thing and are terrified of trying anything else. I, uh, for several years, I was a partner in a very large law firm. I'm a lawyer. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm also an electrical engineer, computer scientist. So what would happen in the law firm is we'd have cases come in, uh, either litigation or regulatory filings, that sort of thing. And these very talented colleagues of mine, much more experienced lawyers, much better lawyers, frankly, um, they would look at the, the, the filing or the brief or something, and if they would come across anything that smacked of technology, they would say, whoa, I can't do that. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. Let's give it to Paul. He's an engineer. He can do this. So I'd say, great. So I got some really cool uh, litigation and cases and all these kinds of things, but it was absolutely unnecessary because, let's put it nine times out of ten, if not more often, the things that they gave me were not difficult. It's th these are things that they could have learned had they just spent a weekend studying it and figuring it out. 
really don't be afraid to do something that's a little bit out of your comfort zone. It's okay. Likewise, for technical people in the room, I have seen the opposite happen. I have seen circumstances where a, a, a very accomplished technologist will see a regulation and say, oh, I don't understand this. The lawyers, let them deal with this. Like, what? Just read it. It's just a couple pages long. It will make sense. Trust me, it's not magic. Read. Um, and so, the, the, the bigger point here, this, this is an individual piece of advice, but the bigger point is I believe that the most fertile areas for exploration and invention and human advancement are in between the silos that have traditionally existed. So take the science disciplines. Uh, yeah, I went to a university, and so at my university, you walk around the campus, and that's the chemistry building, and that's physics, and geology's there, biology's over here, and of course, you know, literature and languages are way over there. The problem is back when I went through university, and this is in the mid or sorry, early 80s, uh, the people didn't talk to one another. If you were a chemist, you went to the chemistry building, you hung out with the chemists and the old-time professors and the graduate students, they were all chemists. And you went to the physics building and so forth. They didn't talk to each other. Um, one example I think is probably the most clear these days is with respect to geology. When geology was taught back in the early 80s, it was taught around minerals and rocks and how do you tell the difference and stratification and you know fault zones. and Well, it turns out that the geology of our planet is completely intricately tied to the biology of our planet. The minerals that have developed on our planet have literally, very literally, evolved right alongside with life. You can't possibly understand geology today without a lot of biology and vice versa. And that also requires now a knowledge of chemistry and physics and so forth. So you get the point. We need to be, as humans, between these traditional silos, and that's the interesting place, but we also have to recognize that, for example, nature or human society, sociology, doesn't exist in silos. We want to put people in silos, we want to think of people in silos, but that's just, that's an, that's just easy. That's lazy in my view. It's much better to think about things holistically, and it's far more interesting that way too. What that requires, of course, again, is a willingness to step outside your own discipline and, and learn other things. Now, my career a little bit is like this, you know, engineer, science, law, and that sort of thing, that kind of a weird combination, but there's much more than that. That's, that's kind of an easy example. There are much more opportunities than that. So I, I'd really encourage you as both an individual and, you know, leaders or in organizations to, to challenge the notion of silos. They, they just, they shouldn't exist. They, they, they exist only out of human convenience, not out of any rationality. Um, so uh, I encourage you to approach your businesses that way. So I think I've left you with maybe some very broad advice. I hope that is actionable somehow. Um, but also some very specific ideas. Uh, try the press release. Try the decision-making idea. Uh, try to figure out how you might apply some of these things in your own businesses. Uh, and it's not because you want to imitate Amazon. It's because Amazon wants to imitate you. Thank you very much.